Well, we are in Ephesians chapter 1. And last week we read verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, past tense, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just as he chose us. That is the word elect. He elected us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So if you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, well, what specifically you're talking about? First Corinthians 15 says three things. You believe Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. You believe he was buried. And then he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. You will be saved. That's it. Well, hold it. You, you don't have to. You don't have to. You don't have to. More, 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 more. No. If somebody has told you there are other spiritual duties necessary for salvation, they're wrong. There's many spiritual duties. Reading the Bible, praying, hearing the, coming together, hearing the word of God preached, sharing our faith, walking in obedience in our many areas of our life, financially, the heart of not lusting or greedy or angry or bitter. All those things are things that the Lord wants us to wrestle through in this human flesh. And where our sin abounds, His grace abounds more. There's no condemnation. There is the conviction, the Holy Spirit saying, hey, I, I'm in you. <laughs> I got better things for you. But it's always loving correction. Never a sense of condemnation. And so he's saying to the believers in Ephesus, God has chosen you before the foundation of the world and every blessing we are going to have, the important ones, the earthly stuff that comes and goes. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? Your stuff comes and goes. My, my son was visiting my brother this week in Idaho and they pulled out a bunch of pictures when I was younger and into weights and working out hard and my son's sending me these pictures going, Dad, my gosh, you were buffed. It was sort of depressing. <laughs> you have and then you don't have. Gravity begins to work. It goes from the chest down to the gut. But either way, in the heavenly places ahead of time, before time began, he gave you all the blessings. They're not hinged on good and bad, weak and strong. It's simply all the blessings he's going to give us because we are his and he is ours. And he wants us to know that those blessings extend all the way into eternity when we are standing before him, holy and without blame. How in love. Why are you putting up with me, God? Because I love you. Why are you blessing me? Oh, my loving kindness and tender mercies lead you to repentance. It, out of love and kindness, the Father putting the ring on our finger repeatedly, putting the robe on us repeatedly, putting the sandals on us repeatedly. 
hugginess and saying, let's go have a feast. It eventually breaks us. Not under condemnation, but just under such love and kindness. And so he has chosen us, elected us. Now, I want to stop here and, and make this very important point this morning. And there are three things, three different people or peoples that are elect. The first person elected in the Bible is Jesus when in human flesh, God with us, who comes to be a sacrifice for us, that we can be free from our sin and guilt and shame by dying on the cross for us. Again, I I, I tried to really keep it down on the scriptures so we could do this thing in an hour and a half. But... uh, I have a lot of scriptures there that I'll try not to to look at. Just let you study on your own. But it goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. We we see immediately there, after Adam and Eve sins, it prophesies that there is an elected one coming who's going to crush Satan's head. He's going to snap at the Messiah's heels. But the Messiah is going to destroy the works of Satan. In Isaiah 42.1, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. You say, well, well, that's a great verse, but how is it talking specifically about Christ? Well, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 15 to 18, Jesus, having healed a bunch of people, said, Hey, multitude, don't go announcing that the Messiah is here. I I need to keep that under wraps for a while. And it says that the scripture might be fulfilled out of Isaiah 42.1. And then it quotes that scripture in verse 18. That Jesus is the elect one that God has brought to heal us. In Isaiah 49, I'm not going to read that whole thing, verse 6 through 7, but it ends by saying, He has chosen or elected you, the Messiah. So here's sort of a dumb question. Do you think Jesus was ever worried about being unelected or unchosen? When he was in the desert and fasting and, and, and praying and Satan was pounding on him, Was Jesus going, oh, am I elect or not? And if I don't make it through this, am I going to be unelected? Do you think there was ever a moment that Jesus thought the Father would unelect him? And I know that's sort of a crazy question, but it's important to what we're talking about here today. The second peoples that's elected is the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. Many places it says this, but here's a couple. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be the people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Psalms 135, 4, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his special treasure. The chosen, the word chosen, elected, it's the same word. And so, 
What do we know about God's choosing of Israel, past, present, and future? Are they ever unchosen because of sin or rebellion? No, they're not. The children of Abraham, that is the nation of Israel, is presently rejecting the Messiah. But God will never reject his chosen. We all need to study that Romans 9, 10, and 11. Read that. God, God makes it clear that unchoosing them, unelecting them, is not an option. He never even thought the thought. Boy, Romans 11, again, this whole chapter is amazing, but in verses 1 through 6, let's start there. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people, whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed their knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is works, then it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. It's either something God has done entirely from himself or in somehow man can earn election or unearned election by the works. He goes on in Romans 11, verse 25 to 29. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel, and lest the fullness of the Gentiles, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. For so all Israel will be saved. Do we hear this, verse 26? And so all of Israel will be saved, as it's written. The deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In chapter 10, verse 21, but to Israel he says, all day long I've stretched out my arms to a disobedient and contrary people. So, the rapture is going to come any time now. Any day. Don't, don't have a lot of change in your pocket. You want to be the first up there, right? And then there's going to be a seven-year tribulation period. Do you know why the seven years exist? It's for Israel to come to the Messiah. At the end of that tribulation period, actually in the middle of it, the Jews worldwide, their eyes will be open and they realized they killed the Messiah. And it's Jesus. And the Lord will return for a thousand year millennial reign to rule and reign as the king of Israel. But it's interesting in Revelation as we look at the description of heaven. 
It's infiltrated with the names of the tribes of Israel. The entire heavenlies have a Jewish origin and a Jewishness to it. The things that are laid down, the, the, the floor that we walk on, the pillars that are there are named after the tribes of Israel. So, knowing what the scripture says here about Israel, do you think Israel should ever worry about being unelected or unchosen by God? Was this promise to choose them to the end, even throughout eternity? So I simply ask you, look at the nature of God concerning election of the Messiah and look at God and his nature of election of the children of Israel. In essence, God is saying, I took this nobody people, the most rebellious, stiff-necked people on earth. Sound familiar? And I'm grabbing them and I'm announcing it to the planet Earth. They're my people. And the whole point of it is God showing us his nature that he never lets them go. Even, as I said in Psalms 106, when they were sacrificing their babies to demons. Yeah, that's a verse in Psalms 106. And it says, God was angry because of this wickedness, and then he relented in the multitudes of his mercy and forgave them. Brought them out of captivity, brought them back into the land. The Lord prophesied thousands of years before he actually did it, saying there's going to be one more time. I bring the Jews from the four corners of the earth and establish them back in their land. Which happened May 18, 1948. 2,000 years without being a nation from 70 AD to 1948. They did not speak Hebrew in the world. The rabbis knew a few words from the scriptures, but they came back and resurrected the Hebrew language. No such thing has ever happened in the history of man. And God says, when that happens, the clock is ticking. When Israel becomes back into the land, they take the nation of Israel. In particular, they take Jerusalem back. Happened in 1967. The Lord is, is saying, if you're alive and seeing this, you are in the last moments of the last days. Jump up and cheer. But for us, looking at the nation of Israel from their conception, God choosing Abraham, and then we read the book of Revelation and we see the description of the building of heaven and what God is doing in glorifying the children of Israel throughout all of eternity, we get a sense of his nature. And his nature is he's faithful even more not. He can't deny himself. So all of those who believe in Jesus, that's us. We are the third group of people chosen. Jesus was the elect. The children of Israel are the elect. 
And those who believe in Jesus are the elect. In Romans 10, verse 11 through 13, for the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Do you hear this? For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What well, seems a little simplified there. I know it is. Because the whole point of salvation is not the glory in you and your religious commitment. The whole point of Christianity is our faith in the nature of God. That's what Christianity is about. It's not about being religious, looking religious, candles burning, incense burning. It's not about that. It's about our faith in who he is. And now freedom comes when we learn who he is. Don't let the rich man glory in his riches or the wise man in his wisdom or the mighty man in his strength. But glory in this, that we understand and know him. It tells us in Isaiah. That true freedom comes, it tells us in oh, several places. When we come to the knowledge of him and of his grace and of his mercy and of his power, then as we know him, we are translated into being more and more like him from glory to glory. Well, in Ephesians 1, 4, this is what we're studying here. Just as he chose us, that's the word elect, elected us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love. Abraham, I'm choosing you and your descendants forever. And then we see it in heaven after heaven and earth have passed away. We see heaven and we see Israel with God. Who else do we see there? Us. We're going to get to it eventually in a couple of years in Ephesians chapter two. <laughs> it says there that we're seated with him in heavenly places. He chose us before the foundations of the world and he sees us holy without blame before him in love. Seated at the right hand of the father with Jesus. That's why we say as he is, so are we in this world. It's just a matter of a second of time we live, of this earth we live, even if you live 120 years old, it's going to be a vapor of time. And we're going to be out of this body, in our new body, with the Lord. So now I come back to us and ask the same question concerning our security. Knowing God's word, the scripture, about us who believe in Jesus, do you think we should ever worry about being unelected or unchosen by God? Was the promise to, to choose us, those who believe in Jesus, to the end and then even throughout eternity? The answer is yes. So now we come to verse 5 here today. And then he says, having predestined us to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So elect is a who. Who's elect? Jesus, Abraham, all of us who believe in Jesus. 
Predestination is the what? As the elect of God, what are we going to be doing? A destination. And it tells us here that we are predestined to eventually be adopted into the family of God as one of his own kids. And this is not a struggle. This is not a grief. This is not, I have to, I've got to adopt you. You believed. I'm stuck with you. No, it's according to the good pleasure of his will that you're adopted into that family. So in Romans 8, verse 29, 30, the verses that talk about this more clearly than anywhere else. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified, made righteous. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Everything in the past tense. It's already a done deal with God. So later we're going to be looking at Ephesians 1.11 and listen to this. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We've been predestined by one that foreknew us, who then in time called us, and then he already has made us righteous. Is that true? Do you look in the mirror going, man, it's so good. Ever since I got born again, I am living a perfectly righteous life. No, this is why the Bible says he declared us righteous. Unfortunately, in this human body, things we don't want to do, we do. Things we do want to do, we don't do. Even on the best day, our righteousness is as filthy rags before God and his righteousness. He declares us righteous because of the work of the cross. Jesus paid for the penalty of our sin. His blood washes away our sin. He rose again, conquering sin, shame, guilt, death. It's all in the past. We're now his kids. And he sees us all the way through eternity. And so we are adopted. The word adoption in the Greek means to place as a son in the family. Interesting. Adoption didn't happen in the Jewish culture. Go back and read the Old Testament. The, the whole point of adoption is from the Roman culture. And in the Roman culture, being adopted was huge. It meant you had the complete rights of a actually born child, nothing lacking. No second class citizen. You were 100% the child of the person that adopted you. Listen to the commentary out of Salmon. He says this, Adoption in the sense of legal transference of a child to a family to which it did not belong by birth had no place in the Jewish law. He continues, Thus among the Romans, a citizen might have received a child who was not his own by birth into his family and give him his name. But he could do so only by a formal act attested by witnesses. The son thus adopted had all its entirety, the possession of the child by birth. 
with all the rights and privileges pertaining to that. Barclay says this in his commentary. The ritual of adoption must have been impressive. It was carried out by a symbolic scale in which copper scales were used. Twice the real father sold his son. Twice he symbolically bought him back. Finally sold him a third time. And at the third scale, he did not buy him back. After this, the adoption adopting father had to go to the predator, the praetor, on the principal Roman magistrates and plead the case for adoption. Only after this had been gone through was the adoption complete. When the adoption was complete, it was complete indeed. The person who had been adopted had all the rights of a legitimate son in his family. In the eyes of the law, he was a new person. So new as he that even all the debts and obligations connected with his previous family were abolished as if they had never existed. It was quite a ceremony. It was quite symbolic. And then the father had to go to court and plead his case, beg that this son, this this person would be adopted into his family with all the rights. This is what Jesus has told us in the book of Hebrews. It says that when he came into human flesh, 100% God according to the spirit, 100% man according to the flesh. So, if I could open up my flesh right now, uh, and you could see my spirit, you would see they're both the same age. They were both made at the same time. But if Jesus at any point could have opened up his flesh, and you looked upon his spirit, you would have been vaporized. Because you would have been looking at the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the infinite God. But once Jesus came into human flesh, it's for all of eternity. He therefore was raised again. His human flesh changed into a heavenly flesh, but no, but continuously human. This is why the Bible says, just as Christ raised from the dead, so shall we in like manner. That's why First John says, I don't know exactly how it all works, but I know this, that when we see him, we will be just like him. Hebrews says, now he is our brother forever. So we will be resurrected in body just as Jesus was resurrected in body. We know from the heavenly picture that his scars remain throughout eternity. Not to shame us, but us to never forget of his great love for us. And so, we are adopted into the household of God as God's child. Now, we're humans, and we're going to be humans in a heavenly body, but we'll always be humans. But Christ is God. He came in a human body. We resurrected. He is God. He never stopped being God. So we're not going to be gods, as some foolishly have said. We're always going to be humans, but yet we're going to be one in that family 
read, read John chapter 17. Father, as I am in you and you are in me, that they would be in us and we in them in a perfect unity, a family. Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus said in John 14, you believe in God, believe also in me, because in my father's house are what? Many mansions, many rooms. You're going to be in that house. You are going to be adopted. It's going to happen when you're in your new body, standing before the father. You're going to see it. We're all adopted unto the father. We're all coming together as equal children in heaven for eternity. Look at Romans 8, verse 14 to 17. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of what? Adoption. By whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then what? Heirs. Heirs of God. Joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffered with him, we shall also be glorified together. So what is he saying here? In the Roman community, he's writing this to the, it's the book of Romans. He's saying, you know about this practice that rarely happens in the Roman community. But when it happens, it's front page news. This is what's happening with you, with God. In Romans 8.23, not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. So we say we're saved, past tense, but we're really not. We say we're adopted, past tense, but we're really not. Because God's definition of salvation is being in our brand new body in heaven with him. Satan cast into the lake of fire. No more satanic presence. All of those who were unwilling because of the hardness of their heart, believe the love of the truth of Jesus and his work of the cross will also be separated with the devil and his angels for eternity. But for us, we'll be in our brand new bodies in heaven. And then we're going to experience that which we're groaning for right now, our brand new bodies. That's what we're growing for right now, a family that's healing and helpful and loving and full of grace. That's what we're longing for. We can look at it here in part. We have weddings, the prophecies of what will come, but they always fall short. We have a family. We understand that concept, but it always falls short. But that, what we long for, will happen in Christ towards God for eternity very, very soon. In Galatians 4, verse 5 through 7, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son an heir of God through Christ. We are adopted as sons by Christ, listen, to himself. Why is all this happening? We're going to be looking at this. It says over 13 times in this first chapter, in him. That's not counting the other ways where it says different ways to Christ, unto Christ. But it is all 
for the glory of Christ. So we're not just called to be born again people. So we go to heaven and not hell. It's unto Jesus. We're his prize. We're his treasure. He's not stuck with us. He wants us. And then it says, according to the good pleasure of his will. It rejoices him. Remember Hebrews 12, it says, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? It's you. Remember he tells the parable about the guy who finds a treasure in the field? What does the guy do? He goes and sells everything he has. He liquefies everything and he buys the field. And so he can get the treasure in the field. That's Jesus. You are his treasure. It's under his good pleasure that we are in him, in love to himself by the good pleasure of his will. In short, God rejoices and delights in us. We'll continue to do so until we are standing before him holy and without blame. Do you know this is such a clear teaching in the Bible? In Psalm 1611, you shall show me the path of life and in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 3527, let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause and let them say continually, the Lord, the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. Psalm 14711, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his mercy. Psalm 149.4, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Isaiah 61.3, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that we may be called the trees of righteousness, the planning of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, has a, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. In Zephaniah, the Lord your God in the midst of the Lord, your God in the midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you in his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Romans 2 29. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. The circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not of the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from what? From God. God rejoices in you. God celebrates you. So what should our response be? God, I therefore respond by rejoicing in you as you rejoice in me. And this is what, again, we find in Psalms 37, 4. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 43, 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceedingly joy. And the harp I will praise you, God, my God. Psalm 63, 3. Because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Psalm 70, verse 4. 
Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, let God be magnified. Romans 4, 2, or 5, 2. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Philippians 4, 4. You guys know this one. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say what? Rejoice. God according to his good pleasure, according to the joy of his heart, has elected you, just like it rejoiced his heart to elect Abraham and his descendants forever. God is rich to everyone who calls upon his name. In Ephesians 1.6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. To the praise of the glory of of his grace to the praise of the glory of his grace all our joy our faith our security of salvation comes by trusting in God's nature in his words and that comes down to one word grace faith in the grace to glory in the grace to meditate in the grace, to be strong in the grace, to rejoice in God's grace. In 2 Timothy 2.13, we find this, that as we look to him and his nature, we find our security. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Philippians 1.6, being confident, glorying in the grace of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. In Matthew twenty-eight twenty, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, vanishing point to vanishing point. In 1 Peter 1, verse 3 through 6, Blessed be the God and our Father, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. In Jude 1, 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory, notice, with exceeding joy. Do you, do you guys hear the security we have in God? We trust in his nature. We trust in his word. God in his very nature cannot lie. In Numbers 20 through 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. As he has said, what? He will do it. Will he not do it? Or as he has spoken, will he not make it good? Titus 1-2, in hope, in certainty. That's that word in Greek. It's not like our English word hope. It's in certainty of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, Promise before time began. God's nature is an unchanging nature. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8 says. James 1.17 says, 
Every good gift, every perfect gift comes from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. There's no fine print. There's, there's no clause in there going, oh, you thought you were going to heaven? Did you read clause number 15, A.2? Ah, no, I didn't. I thought, if, if, you know, if I believe in you, I have eternal life. No, 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 you didn't read the clause. There's no shadow. There's no clauses. What he says is what he means. John 1.14 The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. What? Full of grace and truth. In particular, grace. John 1.16 The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, verse 16 And of His fullness we've all received grace upon Grace. We trust in his faithfulness. We trust in his nature. God cannot lie. We trust in his truthfulness. God is unchanging. His word stands for eternity. And let's not forget that our salvation is a gift from God. And that is big stuff. In Ephesians 2.8, by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Romans 11.29 says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. If you don't know what that word means, it cannot change. So the security of our salvation comes by His truthfulness, His unchanging nature. Our security is not in the foreknowledge, election, or adoption, but is in the truthfulness of God's word and promises. So why am I talking about this a minute? Because the doctrine of Calvinism, and, and, and again, it is something that is permeated within Calvary chapels. It says our security is in the golden chain of Romans 8, 28 through 30. That if we've been elected by God, then we know we're going to be glorified with him. But they have a thing called TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. P is perseverance of the saints which says God will persevere you if you really are elect. So every time they start struggling with sin, they're terrified that they're not the elect because I'm not persevering. And so what does that do? It says, well, what can I do about that? According to their doctrine, you're either elected for heaven or you're elected for hell. And there's nothing you can do about it either way. If you're elected for heaven, it doesn't matter what you're doing, you're going to go there. If you're unelected, it doesn't matter how much you want it, you're not going to go there, you're going to go to hell. And this deterministic thinking is exactly why, if you ever, ever talk to atheists, this is the very first thing they bring up. That God is a deterministic God, and he can't fault anybody. I mean, it's like God created the world, blue the blue pieces on the earthly chessboard, so to speak, are destined to go to heaven, and all the red pieces are destined to go to hell. And the day he makes you a baby, blue or red, it's already set. That's what Calvinism teaches. It's not what the Bible teaches. Well, how are you secure in your faith? Because you know you've been elected? No. Election. Predestination, adoption, 
None of those things make me secure. Why am I 100% certain I'm going to heaven? Because Jesus' nature. Because what he said about salvation. Whoever believes in me shall not perish, but have everlasting life. I'm faithful, even if you're not. In our human condition, we are a roller coaster at best. And when we do say, I want to read the Bible, I want to pray, I want to live holy, it's got to be out of love for God, out of a sense of security. Because if I'm doing it out of insecurity, I'm trying to work my way to heaven. So I've been struggling as a Christian. I'm going to get back to church because I don't want God to blackball me. Here, God, I know I've been doing some bad works, but here's some good works. I'm reading the Bible. Look, take a look, take a look. I'm praying. Oh, I'm going to pray. I'll go help out an orphanage. Okay, God, I know I did those things, but truly, you know, all these other things are making it. You see it? It's a works religion. The Christianity God's given us is apart from works. Lest any man should boast. It is apart from works, so it'll be secure. Adam and Eve were not in sinful bodies. They had one rule, and they broke it. What's that tell us about our human condition? When I say to our Calvinist brothers, I'm like, it's apart from works. Look at the thief on the cross. He, his hands were tied. His feet were tied. All he did is says, Jesus, Lord. If you look at all three Gospels, Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Why? He put his faith in Jesus when, not if, when you come into your kingdom. He believed he was Lord. He had a kingdom. He was going to live for eternity. He was going to raise from the dead. And Jesus said, you'll be with me forever. But I'll say that to my Calvinist brother. He said, well, if he came off the cross, he would be living a persistent Christian life until today. And I say to him, he looks, he's going to look just like you and me. The guy comes off the cross, all he knows is, is stealing. He's going to struggle not to go back to that lifestyle. All he knows is a life of, of being a, a horrible criminal. That's all he knows. He's going to struggle, just like you struggle, just like I struggle. Our human condition is struggling. Have you noticed that? All have sinned, past tense, and are falling continuously short of the glory of God. Every day we do it. And if you think you had like the perfect righteous day, and you say, Lord, reveal that day to me from your point of view, we'll realize <laughs> there is all kinds of earthly, human, sinful stuff happening that we just weren't aware of. God, God's not waiting around for you to get holy. God's not waiting to see, hey, Father, we've got another one almost persisting. We've got to wait till he dies for sure. He's still got a week to go. You, get, you know, once he gets on those drugs in the hospital, that guy's out of his mind. Who knows what he's going to say to the nurses? It's ridiculous. Right now, if you go, we have a good news. What's the good news? Jesus died for us according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again to three days. After three days. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 
this is the gospel that we preach to you. No other gospel. And if anyone preaches any other gospel than that, let them be accursed. We have a good news. God so loves the world. Why in the world would he love us? Especially California. (laughs) That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him has a good chance of not perishing. Is that what it says? Shall not perish. End of story. But shall have everlasting life. What did Jesus say to the woman at the well? If you knew who was talking to you, you would ask him for a drink. Singular. One drink. And you would never thirst again. For those waters would gush forth into everlasting life for you. He didn't say, drink. And then if you keep drinking persistently, we're going to see if you have eternal life. It's very emphatic, guys, in John 4. If you knew who asked of you, you would ask him for one singular drink. And he would give you that one singular drink that would gush forth unto you for everlasting life. This is why we can go to somebody who, like the thief on the cross, sinned their whole life, and they've got tubes going down their mouth, and they're barely aware of what's going on. They're going to die. Can't tell you how many times this has happened. And to say the gospel. (laughs) If you believe in Jesus for your Savior, he died for your sins. Put your faith in Christ. I'm going to pray a prayer that maybe expresses that to your heart. I know you can't talk, but the Bible says you can believe in your heart unto everlasting life in Romans 10. And I'll hold their hand and they'll pray that prayer and... They're breathing. They're terrified. They know that they are separated from God and it could happen for eternity. But when they believe, they have everlasting life. Man, that sounds like a good Christianity. Believe the Lord and then die. I don't have to live for Him. Don't have to go to church. Don't have to pray. Don't have to read the Bible. That, that's that's the, the, the heart that truly understands they're sinful and they want to be born again to live for God. How joyful it is. I love God. My flesh doesn't. I fight praying. I fight reading the Bible. I fight going to church. I fight spiritual things. That's our flesh. There's no good thing that dwells in it. Oh, wretched man that I am. I love God. And I I want everybody to at least have the opportunity. As many as are appointed to eternal life will believe. But I need to ask. I need to knock. Hello? I just want you to know God loves you. And I know you're a sinner because I'm a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. But Jesus paid for all of your sins on the cross. If you'll ask him, he'll forgive you. If you believe in your heart that he, being God's son and human flesh, died and rose again for you. If you believe on that, you will have eternal life. Period. No clauses. No fine print. It's simply by faith in him alone to the glory of his grace in which he made us accepted in the beloved. The word accepted here in the beloved, this word accepted in the beloved is actually one Greek word. Echo retosin. 
This word, ekeritosin, is only used one other time in the Bible, and you know the story well. In the Gospel of Luke, when the angel Gabriel came and he saluted Mary, who would be the mother of our Lord, he says to her, Ekeritosin, highly favored one. We are the highly favored one unto God. How by love through Christ, by his will, we are accepted in the beloved. Guys, it's so healing. If you believe it, if you hear it, because we are constantly experiencing rejection in this world, aren't we? We all have the scars of rejection. We all sometimes subconsciously are are really paralyzed by the fact that we've been rejected. That we won't be accepted. They're saying that right now, this whole next generation that's coming up is going to be severely full of fear and anxiety. And the thoughts of suicide are going to permeate it like no other generation. Why? Because they post out there a picture of themselves and they're asking, do you like it? (laughs) Do you think I'm pretty? What do you think of the picture I took? And if nobody replies, they just feel crazy rejected. But then they just raise the bar. I only had 12 people reply. They said it was okay. They gave me a smiley face. That's it. Oh, they feel rejected again. Only 100 people replied. They just gave me a thumbs up. They must think I'm ugly and stupid. There's, just, there's not a formula you're going to win. Satan is no dummy, is he? He's out to steal. And he's still in our youth. He's out to kill. He's out to destroy. What is that answer? That we go into the world and preach the gospel. There's no rejection in Christ. Not in the past, not in the present, not in the future. According to his love, according to the joy, according to the good pleasure of his will, you are accepted by God for eternity. It is on the basis of Christ, his grace, and his good pleasure of his will that we are accepted. God isn't stuck with you. God loves you. He will not reject you. And he will really enjoy you being in his life. Now, even though we're stumbling around and we're weak, he still enjoys you. He enjoys you being here. When two or three gather together, he's here in our midst. What have we learned thus far in these first six verses? That we are blessed. We are chosen. We are adopted. We are accepted in the beloved. We are blessed in Christ. We are chosen in Christ. We are adopted in Christ. We are accepted in Christ. Matthew Henry, the great preacher and commentator, writer, his parents had him each night before he went to bed to say this. It was a sort of a catechism that he memorized. I take God the Father to be my God. I take God the Son to be my Savior. I take God the Holy Spirit to be my sanctifier. I take the Word of God 
to be my rule. I take the people of God to be my people. I do hereby dedicate and yield my whole self to the Lord. I do it deliberately, freely, and forever. Amen. Lord, please do this work of grace. These verses are hard. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not for those wanting milk. But Lord, we we break apart these incredibly doctrinal statements. And it gets our eyes upon you. It gets our hope in you and in you alone. It sets us to look at your grace abounding where our sin abounds. Your grace abounds more. That your grace is abounding to us throughout eternity. Soon we're going to be a part of your family in heaven at the right hand of the Father with you, Jesus, as an equal son and child in our brand new bodies, exactly like yours, in a perfect righteousness forever. And now we're just hanging on for these few seconds we're on this earth. And it's our joy to walk obediently. It's our, it's our joy to seek you in the word. It's our joy to pray without ceasing. It's our joy to beat our body into subjection that we can serve you. It's our joy, Lord, to fight the flesh and the evil one and the prince of the power of the air and to come together every time the doors are open to say, Lord, we want to seek you. We want to know you more. We want to worship you. We want to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. All these things out of the good pleasure of our hearts in love and worship to the glorious, glorious grace, we thank you. And if you're here today or online or going to hear this at some point in the future and, and you, you're concerned about your security stopping, do you believe Jesus is Lord? If you say yes, that only happens by the work of the Spirit. Nobody can say Jesus is Lord except by the power of God's Spirit having lived in you. You're saved. There's no work. There's no effort. It's a gift of God. Anti-work. Not of works. Lest anybody should boast or anybody fold or anybody worried and fear that your works achieved it so your works can unachieve it. It's by God's glorious grace. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for accepting us and loving, loving a great pleasure of your will to accept us. We don't really think ourselves or anything worthy of accepting, but you love us like a parent loves a child, and we understand that. Like a shepherd to a sheep, we understand that. Like an engaged man to his bride, we understand that. We understand, we see in part, we know in part, but Lord, we want to know you. Lord, now baptize us in the Holy Spirit. Cause us to go into all the world and let people know they're sinners. The Spirit of God's already convicting them of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. You're already working ahead of time to those who are appointed into eternal life. Let us go plant seeds. Let us water those seeds. Let us harvest. We thank you, Lord, that you made it so simple that as whoever is willing to believe you are Lord, that God has raised you from the dead, they also can be saved. Let us go with this good news 
no shadow of turning in that good news, no fine print, no footnotes. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen.